AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work. In traffic, so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists. Like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. You're tuned in to the Gangster Chronicles with James McDonald, Reggie Wright Jr., and Alex Alonzo on the Digital Soapbox Network. I have a material witness on an aggravated battery uh, with a handgun, and uh, they believe uh, this might be in retaliation uh, to her testimony. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you may be listening from. This is another episode of the Gangster Chronicles, and you're listening to Alex Alonso, and I'm here with my co-host. James McDonald. And James, let's just get right into it, man. We got, go. we got a guest here that's probably one of the premier experts on the murders of Tupac and Biggie Smalls. He is also, uh, he led an investigation, a task force investigation, into these into these homicides back in I think 2006, uh, he's a detective retired from the LAPD, and he wrote a book entitled "The Mur- Murder Rap: The Untold Story of Biggie Smalls and Tupac Shakur Murder Investigations." And I believe this book also inspired a TV show called Unsolved. Right. And we have none other than Greg Kading, retired LAPD. Thanks for coming down, man. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Took a while, James. What's you up? Should, hey, hey, you're a busy man. Well, well, you guys went on a tour together, so oh, it shouldn't yeah. have been that hard for him to, well, to get in touch with him. No, he he do a lot of work, and he's always on the airplane, okay. much more than I would love to be. But, yeah, Greg took me to Australia. I, this is the first guy that ever took me out of the state, out anywhere, as far as that matter. Very good friend of mine. Man, I, I really appreciate him. He helped me out a lot with a lot of stuff. Um, I don't think it can get no better fathers meeting somebody and then just just having a friendship, you know what I'm saying? That, you know, in Australia I seen and, and I was I learned a lot. Not only with Greg, but with his son, with his wife, Donna. Donna was So the whole family went to Australia with yeah. you? Yeah, we all went out oh, there. They God. fell in love with James man. So he's kind of now their adopt their adopted uncle. Okay. Yeah. Well before we talk into the what everybody wants to hear about, and which I'm, I'm sure you spoke about many, many times 
Uh, talk about how this Australia tour thing came about, and this is kind of an unusual connection. Very here. unusual, <laughs> yeah. Talk about that, Greg. Well, originally I had gone over to England and Ireland to do a little presentation over there, and then some folks in Australia decided that uh, they thought it might be worthwhile to go down there. A guy named Nick Noonan was the promoter of the show. Who we had on, he was a guest on the Gangster Chronicles, wasn't he? Yeah, uh, he came, he sat in. Yeah, he sat in. Yeah, he sat yeah. in. Okay. So you know Nick, yeah. So he put in a lot of hard work and effort to get this thing going down in Australia. And I had always thought that there has got to be a different voice to this story. And, uh, you know, I can talk about it from the law enforcement perspective, but this story also needs to be told from the, from the street perspective and the environment in which all this stuff took place. And so that's why, you know, the uh, natural collaboration with James was just a, you know, that was an easy transition. I had first met James actually in 2007 while I was still investigating the case. I went out to Las Vegas and we had a chance to sit down and, you know, I was comparing some notes and trying to get some information to further our case. So it hasn't been a short while. It's been 13 years. 13 years. And that was the beginning stages of the task force investigation that you led, right, when you met James? Yeah, we were just a year into it because we started in 2006 and then... It was the following year that we got around to trying to, you know, help reach out and get get some help from people that uh, we had been struggling with to get that door open. And, you know, we thought, hey, well, we've got this guy, James McDonald's. What we can tell, he knows everything there is to know about death row, and um, perhaps he can you know, contribute. And it took more than a decade before you guys came together again. It took a year. Lord <laughs> mercy. It he minute. was the first I ever did a... A, a a Vlad like a Vlad interview. I did an interview with. He was the first one. That's the first one I saw. Actually, yeah, that that's the first one. And period. I that was the best. Nice. I, I think you put mm-hmm. together a thirty minute clip of James. I'm sure the interview was a little longer. Yeah. But that's the one where I was like, ah, oh, James, put it down in this interview. Yeah, it was it was pretty. It was easier to sit down because I did it at his home, and then. Uh, I mean, I was more comfortable than I was just sitting in a little in a little room, yada yada, and then it was easier because the questions that they had for me written down, all I had to do is I don't want to, I don't, you know what I'm saying? So I knew what I was going to be talking about the questions they was going to ask, and I had my nephew there, and he learned something from it. So I didn't know that it was going to be. What it was after I did the interview with him, because after that interview, so many people started calling and, and wanted to do an interview. Well, that interview is almost at a million views now, right? 900-something thousand plus? Yeah. yeah, it, yeah. Uh, it and was... he never called me back to do another one. So <laughs> it, it, that was cool. Now, like, you know, I, I got so many people want to do an interview. I mean, from, from everywhere. The fathers is BBC. So, I mean, that interview... Just made me, it made me feel a whole lot better because I got a lot of shit off my chest talking to them and, and, and helping. And a lot of people seeing uh, the pain that I was going through and all that. So it was easy. Were there any questions that Greg wanted to ask you that you didn't want to answer then that you would answer a whole, now? Uh, no, 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 no. What I, what I didn't want to answer then, I wouldn't answer now, no. Okay. It's some things that will be told, not sold, and not told, and not gold, and not that. No. Y'all can cut that part out. And, and did you understand his issues with probably some of the questions that he didn't want to address with you on camera? 
Oh yeah, well back that well back in 2007 it was, you know, basically the same thing we'd been encountering throughout the case. It was just, you know, there's there's things to be taken into consideration when you're talking to the police. And so for James obviously that was something that uh, he had to um uh, years later, let's just say this, when when we ultimately sit down and have a on-camera interview a lot have evolved. A lot had changed than it was back in 2007. And so for us, you know, it was like finally kind of uh, the armor's been cracked a little bit. And then once you can build a, a foundation of trust and respect, which we didn't previously have, I was just the cop and he was just the guy from death row. And, you know, we weren't in a position at that time to get real. And so as time went by and we ultimately got to know each other and I think he felt that I was somebody that you can sit down and talk to, then the doors opened. Right. Was that your first interview ever, James? Ever. Yeah. Ever. And <clears throat> that interview changed me, period. It changed a lot of things about me. Uh, it helped me unleash a lot of anger I had, uh, especially with my brother. Uh, I was dealing with a... a Suge Knight was... I hated him so much at that time, you know what I'm saying? And it just, it just helped me, you know, I I said a lot of things I, that I didn't want to say to other people, and I wasn't going to never say nothing. But when my mom's told me it was time, to maybe you need to talk and get it out off of your chest. And I did that, and it worked. And shit, look at me now. I mean, <laughs> I'm sitting here really talking and expressing my feelings and everything out to not just only my family, but to people all over the world. Well, man. I don't know if Greg knows this, but that interview you did with James catapulted him to be right here, right now, doing this podcast. It did. Because <laughs> that's uh, really what got the ball rolling, because that led to other interviews, led to other interviews, which led to the producer seeing him. and Him boom. and Vlad, man. I Shout out to Vlad. They both, they it worked for me. It worked for me. Now I can actually talk and just, like, man, just tell everybody everything. Now, before we get into some of these other questions, um, was the Australia tour a success in terms of financial, and will you guys continue and go to other cities? To me, it was. <laughs> yeah, to me, it was. It w I mean, you know, we talked about the only incident I had, which the people in Australia fixed that. I didn't have to say anything. And the the love I was getting from Greg and his family, and then, you know, with with Nick and everybody out there, man. I've I seen different people, talked to different people, different places. How many places we went to? Maybe six cities. And and all of them was brand new to me, so I was loving it. Yeah. I mean, you know, you got a brother out here, just everything's uh, squeaky clean, and everybody was nice, and I loved it. So where's, what's next? Where to go next? Well, we got a call yesterday, um, potentially to go to Scotland. So that would be cool. I've uh, I've been over to the UK before, but I've never been to Scotland. So I'm I'm looking forward to getting an email later on uh, today, and you know, trying to figure out the logistics of it all. But I'd like to take take James out there and, I'm ready and to. do the same thing. Is the interest in the Pac and Biggie homicides stronger abroad than it is here in the U.S. because maybe too many Americans are just tired of hearing about it over and over? Where a tour, a multi-city tour in the U.S. might not be as successful as going to Europe, Australia? 
Yeah, well, you know, these guys, both Pac and Big, were just, they're international superstars, you know, and so it's really interesting, you know, like in Germany, um, Biggie's more popular. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strange thing that there's these just different little dynamics that take place at different places around the world. Japan and all of these, you know, places that don't even speak a common language are still, these guys are iconic and they're superstars. And so, and then, of course, the mystery surrounding their deaths is, is another whole area of interest to people. So I don't know if it's more popular over there than it is here. I just do know that this story never seems to fade out. It doesn't seem to die, and there's always a insatiable appetite to know more about it and to learn more about these guys, both as human beings and as artists, but also about uh, hopefully finding some closure in, in what happened in the, in the end. I don't think the story will ever fade because these guys were in their prime when they were murdered. You could actually say they were the number two and number number one and number two rappers on earth, right. which is kind of crazy that your number one and number two rappers get murdered within six months of each other. That's a story to tell for the next hundred years. Right. So I don't think it'll ever die down. I don't, I don't, I mean, you got new documentaries being made right now in the day about Tupac and Biggie. What more is it to tell about Tupac and Biggie? They've been gone 23 years, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But it's still coming. And like in Australia, the people were way different. Their aspect was way different than what we have now. They was like so stoked about it. They, you know, wanted to hear and wanted to understand the story of why. So I think that's what was 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 good for us out there in Australia. We brought, let's say, closure to some people, or some people had a better understanding after the show was over of what really happened. Because while <clears throat> Greg was was talking and he said and showed on on this on this uh, this uh, the, the, yeah. Now they see from his aspect of it. Then from me coming in and then they, they listening to where I was coming from and why these guys was getting killed and why things was happening in each neighborhood, they was pretty much kind of like blowed away. You know what I'm saying? And I thought, man, it was, it was the people out there wanted more than what you got out here. Well, I want to talk about the, the live slow burn I oh guess presentation that, that shit crazy. That it was crazy. But before we get into that, I just want to let all the listeners and viewers know that this is episode 45 of the Gangster Chronicles. And for those who are listening to us on iTunes, please give us a rating and review. We're also available on Google Play for Samsung and Android users, Spotify as well. And you could also listen to this show. My mom is actually using Alexa. So if you have an Alexa, just just say it. Just say, Alexa, play the Gangster Chronicles, and it'll come up. And you could also listen and follow the show on the Himalaya app. Just go to your app store and download the free app. Himalaya has a red icon with the letters H-I in it. And you can follow us there. And you can watch video portions of this show on the Digital Soapbox Network, which are produced by Smooth Cut Productions. And on that platform, we also have merchandise for the Gangster Chronicles T-shirts, hoodies, and etc. And um, AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. 
lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Moments like seeing my son's team cheer him on mean a lot to me. But after being diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer or MBC, which is breast cancer that has spread to other parts of the body, they mean even more. I take Ibrantz, Palbociclib. Ibrantz 125 milligram tablets with an aromatase inhibitor is for adults with HR positive HER2 negative NBC as the first hormonal based therapy. Ask your doctor about Ibrance and visit Ibrance.com. Ibrance may cause low white blood cell counts that may lead to serious infections. Ibrance may cause severe inflammation of the lungs. Both of these can lead to death. Tell your doctor right away if you have new or worsening symptoms, including trouble breathing, shortness of breath, cough, or chest pain. Before taking Ibrance, tell your doctor if you have fever, chills, or other signs of infection, liver or kidney problems, are or plan to become pregnant, or are breastfeeding. Common side effects include low red blood cell and low platelet counts, infections, tiredness, nausea, sore mouth, abnormalities in liver blood tests, diarrhea, hair thinning or loss, vomiting, rash, and loss of appetite. So last night was... An extremely interesting conversation between you, Greg Hating, the author of Murder Rap, and also with Randall Sullivan, the author of Labyrinth. Mm. Um, Russell's book came out first, and then yours came out actually within the last five years, I think. And James, these two were were going at it hey, last it was, night. It was so <laughs> it was so damn funny. But if people, this was what people need to see. Just that little bit last night. What you need to see, not not taking up for you, but I got all these documents right here. Yeah, this is what you have. You know what I'm saying? So you can't you you. He, there was no way for him to investigate all the shit that that was was being investigated. You're talking about Sullivan. Sullivan. So how did you come up? And I thought we was gonna be able to, you know, do a little Q and A where a motherfucker can get up and say something because <laughs> I wanted to say something bad. Where you getting your information from and that's what people fail to realize like i told the guy after the show was over in the, the one that was up there i didn't know his name that did the show where do y'all get your information from everybody keep talking about how they doing the information how they how they gather information and they talking to these people and talking to these people who the hell y'all talking to y'all the only way y'all could talk and get something is like how greg did Talk to the people that were involved. You can't talk to people that weren't there. How can you come to California and say you got information on on what happened on the uh, the third of of 1997? You you don't have no clue. You weren't there. You was at home. You just flew out. Well, to to Randall Sullivan's defense, and I'm not defending him or the book. He did have an LAPD detective, just like Greg Cading was. Working. That was his main source, and we're talking about Russell Poole. So he feels very confident. I got an LAPD source, a detective, Russell Poole, 
Greg Kading's an LAPD. He wrote his book, so it's kind of like a battle of ideas. Shouldn't, a they be on of the, shouldn't they be on the same page, though? They should be, but I'm sure right now Greg is going to explain to us why they weren't on the same page. And I just want to shout out Joel Anderson, mm-hmm. who was moderating between you and Randall. Um, so go ahead, tell tell James and I why you guys, Russell Poole and Randall Sullivan, are not on the same page. And Russell Poole is no longer li- alive, for those who don't know. He, he died of natural causes uh, several years ago. Right. So Russell Poole, back at the time that uh, Biggie was murdered, uh, shortly thereafter, him and his partner inherited their responsibility of investigating the case. And then Russ is only on it for a short period of time, relatively. Less than know, a year. Less than a year. And, you know, he had some leads that he needed to follow up, follow up on. And as a result of some of the information that he was attaining, he began to draw these conclusions. And through that process, because of things that were happening in his own personal life and his professional life, he was removed from the task force. And so he only had this nine or ten months to work with. And uh, not to, you know, not to uh, criticize anything that he did. He was just going through the motions. But I, in contrast, I was ten years down the road. And so I had the advantage that he never had. I had ten years of investigative effort to evaluate, assess, and then look back. I could see everything from hindsight. He was limited to this this perspective that he saw for nine months. I had 10 years. And in that period of time, over that 10 years, there was multiple other investigations going on. There was a huge racketeering investigation of death row by the FBI and the ATF. They were interviewing all kinds of people. And a lot of the information that was contained in that investigation affected or had influence on the murder investigations. And then, of course, the Rampart scandal came out, and then all these allegations about cops being involved in Biggie's murders. And so that whole investigation I had access to. So I had things that Randall Sol- I'm sorry, that uh, both Randall Sullivan and Russell Poole couldn't have dreamed of you know, having at their disposal in order to get a better picture of what took place. They were limited, and from that <coughs> limited perspective, they drew conclusions, and these conclusions were demonstrably wrong. And they then began to advocate allegations against people that were factually innocent. And that's where I take issue. I don't have a problem with somebody having an opinion about it, going out and doing your own research, you know, whatever. But before you start falsely accusing innocent people of, of these heinous crimes, you, got, you better have your fucking facts straight. <laughs> Can you give us some uh, specific examples of that? Who were some of the people that he was thrown under the bus, whether that be Rus- Russell Poole or Randall Sullivan? Well, both of them collectively, um, you know, Sharitha Knight for one. Oh, yes. You know, <laughs> and being uh, accused of being involved in, 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 uh, in Suge's attempted murder. Uh, it just, it's, it's ludicrous. Uh, Reggie Wright, you know, obviously Reggie Wright's no saint. He's a, a person that... Uh, uh, it should be accountable for things that he's done in his life. But I have also got to vindicate Reggie Wright because I know for a fact he had nothing to do with these crimes. And in fact, Reggie was very helpful in the process of this investigation. Reggie had been interviewed a dozen times by different people from different agencies. And one thing that I can say about Reggie is that we never found him to lie. He wasn't always entirely truthful. He wouldn't tell us everything he knew, but he never lied. 
He never sent us down the wrong path, the wrong direction. I respected that. I understood that he couldn't tell us some things because he's got his own life and issues to deal with. But he never, he never lied. And, uh, and then, of course, the most um, affected by all this was an individual named Amir Mohammed, who was a, was a close friend of David Max, who was this disgraced LAPD detective. A.K.A. Harry Billups, Harry right? Harry Billups. Man, and the cloud of suspicion that he had to live under as a result of the claims that were in Labyrinth and as a result of the claims that Russell Poole and uh, um, Randall Sullivan continued to publish, it, it was just irresponsible, reckless, and, you know, in my opinion, criminal. Now, how come? Me, wait a minute. Go let ahead, Let me ask James. a question. Now, would it be safe to say that all the things that was going on with the police department or in the police department, did that throw the police department off the investigation off of, the, of trying to catch the Tupac and Biggie uh, killers? Because it seemed like more the, the police were more at it than they, you know, they wasn't like they were more at it with each other. Like this guy, he was such a dick. Last night, I keep forgetting his name. I don't even want to remember. Randall Sullivan. Yes, he was such a (laughs) dick. I mean, he was very irritating. I don't know if he irritated you, but just not to let no one talk. But I mean, do you think just back to where I was at that what was going on in the police department did that have anything to do with your investigations and? Well, yeah, I mean, there were distractions that took place. The Rampart thing, there was a distraction. There was a lot of unnecessary um, time spent um, going down dead ends. So do you think that's why people was looking and saying that the police, one of the theories that the police killed uh, Biggie, Tupac? Well, you have to follow up on those leads. You know, when information comes in and if it's circumstantial or compelling, like, for instance, just this is what happened with David Mack. David Mack commits a bank robbery, right? Shortly thereafter, he's posing in a picture and he's got this red fedora hat on. He's got this red suit on and his prison letters that he's sending home. He's West Side Riders and people in prison that he's selled up with. He's, he's gangstering up. And so, okay, what's going on with this guy? And then you have other jailhouse informants coming forward and going, yeah, David Mack told me that he was involved in Biggie's murder. He knows Suge. He attends parties with Suge. And so we don't know if that's true or not, but we have to go through the motions of determining whether it is and and validating that information. So you have to go through those motions. Right, right. uh, But you can't draw conclusions just off what a jailhouse informant tells you. And in time, um, at least with this case, all of these guys turned out to be lying because they were motivated by like, well, I'm trying to move out of this prison in order to get closer to home, so I'm going to go to this prison. They all had their own motives. And, uh, you know, this was a high-profile case, and they thought if they threw their name in the hat that law enforcement would help them with their situations. Wow. And that was the game that was played on more than one occasion and with more than one informant. And that really muddied the waters. That made it very difficult to stay on track with the investigation because you're constantly going in these different directions based on these these claims. Got to follow up on everything. Got to follow them up. You know, so, you know, David Mack was somebody that needed to be looked into. Um, But at the end of the day, um, you know, what I found with 
guys like Russell Poole and guys like Randall Sullivan, once they develop a theory, they dig their fucking heels in, no matter what information refutes their theory. Wasn't that typical policing? I, I find that in a lot of cases that I work mm-hmm. on, when we investigate a particular defendant and we find out, oh, maybe you should look at this other defendant, they're stuck on who they think did it and they're going to trial with that no matter whatever evidence we present to them to show, hey, (coughs) this guy might be innocent, but this other guy might be worth looking at. They don't want to look. Is that typical? It it is, unfortunately. I don't know if that's a human condition or what, but once you've invested in something, you don't want to accept the idea that, shit, I was wrong. And I put a bunch of time and energy and effort into something that is, is ultimately wrong. And so I think that that is often the case. And, and this is what I've always said about Russell Poole. You know, I, I'm not here to shit on the guy. I'm just saying that he lost his objectivity. And it's very clear through what happened in this investigation that he formed a conclusion built on selective information. And then he dug his heels in and said, this is what. And, and that led to people being falsely accused. And I that's actually, right. I actually believe that Amir Muhammad was the trigger person of Biggie for a few, couple of years. Mm-hmm. It felt it felt real. They linked him to an SS Impala somehow, some kind of way. Um, they said he dressed like the Nation of Islam. Mm-hmm. They had a, a composite sketch that looked like yeah. <laughs> Amir Muhammad, and I was like, okay. And then years later, I find out about um, Pooch, and that mm-hmm. the, the Pooch theory sounds way more plausible right. than the, M- Amir Muhammad. But yeah, I believe that Harry Billups, <laughs> Amir Muhammad, was the killer in the beginning. Yeah, and a lot of people did because you were only be, you were only given the information that supported that narrative, Rich. and that's what the book does. It just gives you the information that supports that narrative. What the book doesn't, what Randall Solvon's book doesn't tell you, is that that information came from a clinically diagnosed schizophrenic, you know, in who was in prison and had a bunch of his own um, psychological issues to deal with. And right off the bat. He was discredited by the LAPD as a reliable source in that case. Wow, he lost his pension. He lost everything and just for this case. He dedicated himself for that. I mean, he, he, did he quit the police force? He, yeah, he walked away prematurely. He was just less than a year short of his pension, which goes to show you where he was at mentally. <sighs> you know, he lost his objectivity. He, he uh, was frustrated with the department. He saw everything as a big cover-up. And in fact, it was just, these are the natural processes of these investigations, you know, in law enforcement, there's um, all kinds of different um, th- protocols that have to be followed. You know, there's checks and balances. And uh, he just didn't uh, fully understand that evidently and walked away from the job. I say this, if, if they investigated every murder of a black man or a teenager <laughs> that, that we have every day, then we, it wouldn't be no more crime. Now, Greg, did you ever track down Amir Muhammad and interview him or talk to him? Mm-hmm. Because I don't think we've ever seen him give an interview. Why would I don't he? think he's ever publicly spoke to just clear his name to say, no, hey, he I don't have to do clear it. his name. Yeah. Clearing his name is not saying well, shit. Well, to both your points. I have spoken to him at length, and I've asked him. I was like, hey, and uh, this is what I did with Reggie back in the day. I was like, Reggie, you need to get out there and defend yourself. <laughs> you know, you've got a lot of people out here questioning whether you are actually involved in these things. And the best advocate for your defense is you. So get out there and start defending yourself. And, and he did, and I think he made some headway. I think that he was able to sway people's opinions. 
But then him getting indicted yeah, on the marijuana help. stuff yeah. kind of made it. It didn't help. It might have been a step backwards for him. Reggie's not here to defend himself. <laughs> <laughs> but, so. the, you know, the truth of the matter is just because you do something wrong doesn't necessarily mean you did, you know. And that was always been my point is that we all make mistakes. Yeah. And that, but because we make mistakes, that doesn't necessarily mean that, uh, you know, that, we, that we're cold blooded murderers. And that's the equation that people draw. Well, look at Reggie Wright Jr. He's a drug trafficker. <laughs> well, it makes sense. Well, that he would I, then, you I know, believe it don't matter whether you're police or fireman, whatever occupation you hold, don't mean you don't have that, that gangster mentality in you. You know what I'm saying? You said Reggie got a little gangster in him. I'd say Reggie and everybody <laughs> else do. The David Max of, of, of today. You got cats that, that firemen will shoot you. You know what I'm saying? It, it don't take nothing to have a gangster mentality. It all it just all depends on the individual. Well, I never believed Reggie Wright had anything to do with any of these shootings. No, it well, just, I mean, it just never the dots never connected for me. Yeah, and there was never a time within law enforcement that he was a suspect either. So how did this? Uh, other than Randall's book and and um, it was all through jailhouse informants okay. that were throwing Reggie under the bus. <laughs> So those guys all had an incentive, mm -hmm. I guess, to try to get out of jail early. Right. But when you throw out a foul theory, does not help the uh, the inmate in custody, does it? Um, it really depends. Most of these guys are, you know, known snitches, so they, you know, they're in protective housing a lot of times. Wait up. We got to take this call. I'm sorry to cut you that's, off. That's your boy Reggie. Okay. <laughs> Let me just... I got Reggie right. All right, so um, ladies and gentlemen, we got a call from Reggie Wright Jr. from a federal correctional facility. What's going on, Reggie? What's going on? You tell me. Hey, the, the first thing I want to the first thing I want to say is that that video that you and John on Bomb First were talking about had nothing to do with me. You already know. Oh, he already knows. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, John apologized to you. Yeah. Yeah. John sent me he he sent me a text message apologizing, but I don't think we addressed it on the Gangster Chronicles. Well, I just wanted to say, never said any of those things. Had nothing to do with me. I don't know if it's because the other guy's name is Alex. I don't know, but yeah, we got past. Hey, we got Greg sitting here with us. What's up, Reg? Greg, oh, Greg, Katie, what's up, baby? man? I was calling to talk, talk shit to my boy uh, James. You know, Come on, condolences first. Cause you ain't and called me. Tell him, tell him how, uh, how how he think only gangbangers is, is Jesus. I heard he been on on Vlad and the pump Vlad up and told Vlad, you know how shit was a wimp and stuff. Growing up and didn't have no street cred. Him and Nick Cannon had to come to defend him over on Vlad and stuff. And, um, we say, I, I say Suge didn't have no street cred. Yeah, but anyway, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk to Greg Katie. What's up, Greg? Well, Greg, Greg doesn't have a mic right now, so, so it's not going to be uh, unless we can. There you go. Greg got a mic now. Let's call. It's from a federal prison. Yeah, as long as he can hear me, because, you know, to be honest, 
Okay, well, um, before you do that, then I got something to say to you. Stuff out, stuff out. I no, shut up. Shut up. I got something for your twelve minutes. Check this out. Gangster Chronicles is your family, I right? Listen. I don't want to listen to James. Well, you gonna listen, or your twelve minutes gonna be fucked? Nope. Let me tell you something, dude. If you don't call me, if you don't write me, and you don't what you call them, we stopping your motherfucking check. I am highly nigga. upset that you don't call and say nothing to me. Nothing. Nigga, I said Texas to you. I have my wife said Texas to you. And your wife, I, your I wife, yes, yeah, she did. Greg last week, not you, Greg. You and, um, what's called last week, he don't right. respond. Y'all don't answer my Talk calls. to Greg. If I don't get, get it, if I don't get a letter, talk to Greg. I ain't got the G in Why, why, how did he feel when, uh, when, uh, when, um, DJ Quick Disney in front of the, everybody at the Source Awards and all of that. And y'all just be dogging me. I'll be having questions, industry questions. Y'all just up there being nice and, and cool with everybody. But I, I got questions that the people want to hear. Okay, that's, and that's why you take that shit to bomb first. You don't call okay, me, dog. I don't have an opinion on Gangsta Chronicles. I ain't yeah, you got an opinion on Gangsta Chronicles. That ain't what I'm saying. Are you being serious now or are you just talking shit? Hey, Reg. One of the things we're going to talk about with uh, Greg are all the ridiculous theories in these uh, homicides, and I guess the Reggie Wright theory is being involved. And we're going to we're going to talk a little bit about that, and I'm sure Greg has some things to say about how that's one of the dumbest theories that anyone put out there. Let me have some, let me let me throw out some questions, and um, and then and, and then for y'all to address it, then we can go over that. Just so I can, that I want to make sure that y'all go over with Greg for me. Cool? Go ahead. Is that cool? Uh, executive producer James McDonald? <laughs> no, go ahead. Go ahead, Rex. You only got about nine oh, okay. minutes. Yeah, cool. All right. Uh, um, so, Greg, how you doing, man? I'm good, man, Number one, I wanted, to, I wanted to tell you, uh, your boy James, uh, he spoke real highly of how well you and uh, his wife and his son treated him over in Australia. And uh, he came back with a lot of praise Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, we, we had a good time. Down on one track line and don't have a different number of opinions or whatever. And then 
prosecutor since he just came out and confessed. They don't really understand. A confession alone, you know, it's hard, it's hard for a DA to uh, pick up and uh, do some convictions. Okay, those... those. talk about those things, but, but I, yeah, but, you know, whatever questions y'all had or want to talk about, well, I see uh, James must be over there and upset for some reason. Nah, James is cool. Well, Reggie, I'm a, wait a minute. We listening. To, we listening to you, Reg. Oh, okay. But okay. I can't oh, slap the shit at you right now. About. Wait a minute. Wait. This is more important than anything. I, I don't know if Jay heard me when I said condolences about his auntie. Um, I appreciate I it. That. And then the other thing was um, Buntry. I don't know if uh, Jay mentioned that Buntry didn't he just have a recent? Would have had a 54th birthday. Yeah. Recently, his so birthday was uh, February the fifth. Okay, Reggie, we're going to hit all, all four of those points, but I wanted to ask you about, we didn't get to talk about this since the last time you called in, but you said you had been walking the track, and I think you said you had lost 14 pounds back then. Are you still yeah, on your workout? It's up to about 22 now. It's up to 22. It's been stagnated at 22 for a while. I'm a little upset about that, but um, I can probably work out a little bit harder to change my but I'm up to about 22, 25 pounds. I go back and forth, depending on what day of the week it is. And I'm um, up to about two miles a day, which ain't nothing. Because these niggas out here, man, they be working out. They like animals. And they doing burpees and stuff. James tried to tell me to learn the game of chess and a Pekino or Pinocchio, whatever they call it. But that's all these niggas do around here. That's all we got to do around here. Wait, you, okay. you, you never learned how to play chess? Oh, okay. Man, sit down and play chess. It, it, your time will go a lot faster. Yeah, they do. That's all they do, James. You was right about that when you told me on that. Come in here they learn how to play chess. If you don't do that, they'll Exactly. They play a lot of chess. So do you have a new release date, Reggie? Uh, I haven't got the official one. It's all depending on when a halfway house bed comes. But I'm eligible anywhere after September. But shoot, these beers are so so crowded. Or getting out, it'll probably be sometime in October. But I'm hoping for September right now. So it looks like September the first, but more than likely October. So between September and October, I'll be out in a halfway house by that time. Okay. Come to work. <laughs> yeah. Your boy uh, Lee Baca is in El Paso, Texas. Lee Baca. Lee Baca is in El Paso, oh, yeah, Texas. Yeah, I, heard he was, I heard he's in Texas. Did they, they, is he at a prison camp or what? Yes, yeah, oh, yeah. I believe it's a camp. Let's call this from a federal prison. I think okay. he's in a camp just like yours. Okay, yeah. The, 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 the thing that's good about that is that about they got a new First Step Act that's out. And people that's over 60 now, they get out. They only do two-thirds of their time now that they get sent to. So that means yeah. uh, Lee Baca should be out. I think he was sentenced to three. So it's two thirds of the eighty-five percent, or two thirds of the three years. That's a good question. I, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Lee Baca. Who is Lee Baca? 
It was the sheriff. Reebok, fuck me. How how often does the number one cop go to prison out of a police department? He's from from L.A. L.A. County. But he's in El Paso, Texas. He just um, turned himself in to do his time. All right, what else is on your mind, Reg? Um, man, that's, shit, that's about it, I guess. Um, I just really wanted to get off on, on my boy James about, um, I heard he, he, he didn't know we on Vlad, and, um, not about his interview with Vlad, but Vlad, uh, they go in there, Nick Cannon, I heard about that. So, um, so, Nick Cannon go up there just because I said something? No, he, well, he's not going against you, he's just saying, <laughs> and they were just pretty much saying how shit wasn't against him, I think he did well, I, I mean, I, I'll say it on Gangster Chronicles. Suge wasn't born or bred like we were. Suge was not yeah. a street cat like we were. Suge was not a carrier pistol yeah, cat like we but were. Football, but, but football players didn't, didn't have no problems with game bangers. The game bangers didn't have no problems with football players. No, that's, that, wasn't, that wasn't the question. I mean, at that time, I lived and, and all of us lived a game banging life. Suge never lived a gang-banging life. And if anybody can tell me he did, then I'm wrong. And I would apologize. No, 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 no. Suge never carried a red bandana. Suge never got in that car and did a drive-by. Suge wouldn't cut for that. That's what I was saying. So if people want to take that wrong, man, I I ain't say Suge wouldn't fight after the fact or whatever. But everybody know that Ronald and Donald was, was... Yep. In fact, uh, his time was up. That's cool. I, you know, I just hate that when people take something I say and then they just get it all misconstrued. Suge was never a a carrier pistol type of cat. Suge ain't never had a gun in his waist and a red rag in his back pocket or who, walked who, from. Who, who's out there claiming that he was? Well, these people saying Suge is a gangster, whoever they are. Right. I mean, if you didn't live the neighborhood or, or or live how we lived, then you can't, you don't know. Yeah. Okay. All right, so the last thing was, um, have you had a chance to meet Amir Muhammad, Harry Billups, and talk to him, and, and what was that like? Yeah, I've had a number of conversations with him. Um, the latest, I think, was just a few days ago, actually. And, uh, you know, he's living out in Georgia, and... Um, just living his life and taking care of his family and trying to avoid all this. And I think he thought it was all behind him until this most recent book came out by Randall Sullivan, uh, just resurrecting all of these old claims. And uh, so I did the same thing with him that I have did with Reg. I said, you need to get out there and defend yourself, man. Publicly defend yourself. Because when people see you and hear you, they're going to have a completely different impression than what they have by what they've been told in these books. You sit down. He's a very intelligent guy, very articulate, very kind and respectful. He's educated. You know, there's nothing about him at all that resonates like, wow, that sounds like, you know, somebody who would have done this. It's not that impression that you get. And then, of course, we know factually, just because of all the evidence that was proposed to stand up against him, was all, you know, disproven. But uh, I, I think that for him, his decision is just to stay, stay in the cut and not, not come out and do anything about it. So Now, James, what do you think about that? Because Reggie Wright decided, because Reggie Wright was quiet for many, many years. No one had heard from him. And he decided to come out, defend himself, 
But for whatever reason, Harry Billups hasn't publicly said a word. Am I right on that? He's never publicly said a word. No, the only thing he's ever done in his own defense is he went to a deposition. He was summoned to a deposition as a result of the Wallace lawsuit. He went to the deposition, and almost immediately after that deposition, he was dropped from the lawsuit. What do you think about that, James? Uh, two different approaches. Reggie decides to defend himself. Harry Billups, Amir Muhammad decides it, not it, to. It really all depends on the person. He, he just don't want to deal with it. Um, Reggie was like that at first, too. But then when, when you told Reggie he needed to get out there and defend himself, Reggie took it. Reggie is smashing everybody that got something to say to him. <laughs> yeah. So Reggie found a way to deal with it, and that's his way. You know, getting that improvement to to everybody that this person is whoop de whoop whoop. You you ain't good enough to talk about me like that. So I advise people not to talk about Reggie. But this guy, why? Why go out there and start talking and then somebody take the smallest thing and make it out of something real big and then now he's really in the loop. Oh, you heard he said this? He doing the right thing. Live your life. Don't worry about what nobody else got to say about you. And just do you. Stay away from all this. It's just unfortunate that you have people out here trying to eat off something that would that happened 23 years ago, and, it, and it, they don't realize that it's still affecting people that's still alive today. You know, it's hurting them. So, And they don't take into consideration that it's not just him. He's got a wife. He's got kids. He's got neighbors. He's got coworkers. And people talk. Exactly. And they'll form opinions off of what they've been told. And that's where I, again, that's where I take issue with these guys, that factually um, he's completely innocent. He's so exonerated that uh, the fact that these people are still pursuing and advocating for that bullshit story, it's so irresponsible and disrespectful. So is this, I haven't had a chance to look at Randall's new book, but um, I'm sure you've read everything. Mm -hmm. Is he repeating some of the same stuff in the Labyrinth book? In the new book as well? Yeah, it's kind of like the sequel. It's just the same narrative, same storyline, but the conspiracy has grown massively. <laughs> now it's just not a dirty cop and, and, uh, and his high school or his uh, college buddy. Um, now it's a dirty cop, his college buddy, the United States Attorney's Office, the FBI, the LAPD, the district attorneys, all these. Now it's, there's 200 people involved in this conspiracy who are all agreeing to risk their reputations, their careers, and their lives to cover up for David Mack. And this is not a novel. Okay. <laughs> it sounds like a novel the way you describe it. It's, it's, it's ludicrous. You know, the, the idea that all of these people, who most of who don't even know each other, from all of these different walks of life and all these different agencies, are all going to collectively agree that we need to... We need to suppress all this information in order to protect David Mack and Amir Mohammed. AT&T connects an ode to podcast. Connect the alarm, change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze, 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower, lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work and traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Live Nation presents Concert Week. 
Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Moments like seeing my son's team cheer him on mean a lot to me. But after being diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer or MBC, which is breast cancer that has spread to other parts of the body, they mean even more. I take Ibrance, Palbocyclib. Ibrance 125 milligram tablets with an aromatase inhibitor is for adults with HR-positive HER2-negative NBC as the first hormonal-based therapy. Ask your doctor about Ibrance and visit Ibrance.com. Ibrance may cause low white blood cell counts that may lead to serious infections. Ibrance may cause severe inflammation of the lungs. Both of these can lead to death. Tell your doctor right away if you have new or worsening symptoms, including trouble breathing, shortness of breath, cough, or chest pain. Before taking Ibrance, tell your doctor if you have fever, chills, or other signs of infection, liver or kidney problems, are or plan to become pregnant, or are breastfeeding. Common side effects include low red blood cell and low platelet counts, infections, tiredness, nausea, sore mouth, abnormalities in liver blood tests, diarrhea, hair thinning or loss, vomiting, rash, and loss of appetite. Now, last, um, at that Slow Burn event, it seemed like you guys must have a history. It wasn't just that one night you guys no, went no, at no. it. Can you t- explain a, the history that you and Mr. Sullivan have to where it seems like as soon as you guys are on the same stage, you're going at it? W- where, what's the history like between you guys? There's no personal history. I've never met him before. I've never talked to him before. In fact, that was one of my points last night on the stage. I was like, you know, you're publishing all of this. You have information. And... You should, if you're a responsible journalist and you really want to find out the truth, you need to get as many different perspectives on things as you can. If somebody's accused of something, you need to go talk to that person and get their side of the story, right? And, you know, he makes these wild accusations against me. He never made any attempt whatsoever to come and talk to me to say, hey, Greg, well, this is what I heard. I'm going to write a book. You have an opportunity here to either correct this or provide at least your perspective on it. That's what you do when you're looking for the truth. That's what you do when you want to publish something with a responsible, objective perspective. It's not what they do. What they want to do is continue with this bullshit narrative that's completely disproven in in the hopes that they can continue to um, mislead people into believing this wild-ass theory about this huge cover-up. What was your first reaction, James, after um, seeing Randall Sullivan and Greg Caden go at it for about what was it, about maybe twenty minutes? I don't even know how long that lasted. It was about that. It was, it was, but it was short. <laughs> and I have a video of it. Um, I'm gonna see if I could have permission from Slowburn to post that on my channel um, because I thought it was compelling. And it was, it was crazy. I was just sitting in the chair, just, just threw back because I'm looking at him, and then right here you see Greg got it. Hold up, wait a minute. I got that for that. <laughs> but he just got this book. With like he was taking notes on what he wanted to lash out about, and when he started off, he he tried to what he what he tell you he said you was like crazy or something. He, he, he what what so he came off disrespectful, and and that's what so often happens in these type of either debates or you know these these arguments is that when they can't disprove your facts, then they just personally attack you, and that seems to be the 
approach that they take. Well, we can't disprove the facts, so now we have to smear his reputation. Yeah, like that one part where he was talking about Miss Wallace and the 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 tape was supposed to be hidden or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now, when she seen that, she got mad. And a lot of people don't know that. But people think that the purpose of, of talking to her and dealing with her or you coming in is to discredit that so they can drop the lawsuit. Mm. And once the lawsuit was dropped, now here come all the shenanigans again. But but when she didn't know that that about the hidden tape, explain that how that went last night. Yeah. So during the trial, there was a there was a allegation that the LAPD was suppressing some evidence. Which trial can you explain? The wall. The uh, biggest the. After Biggie was killed and the book Labyrinth was published, uh, based on the information in the book, it compelled an attorney to contact Mrs. Wallace and say, look, if, if these claims are true, then the LAPD is culpable in the murder of your son. We ought to sue him. That led to a lawsuit in 2002, roughly. And so that lawsuit, as it began to go through the motions of court, um, got to a point where their attorneys argued that we were suppressing evidence. So they came to the police department uh, on the judge's orders, and they found some material that was in the um, the desk of the investigator that was assigned to the case at the time, a guy named Stephen Katz. And they found a tape from a jailhouse informant named Kenneth Boagney. So they made this big deal about it. Look, it, man, here's proof. They're suppressing evidence. Look, this detective interviewed a guy, and this guy says that uh, Rafael Perez was involved in this murder. And you're familiar with Rafael Perez, the Rampart scandal guy. And so that went, you know, to court and the judge was like, hell yeah, this is clearly um, inappropriate suppression of evidence. So she issued a sanction against the city for like a million dollars and declared a mistrial. Well, shortly thereafter, the attorneys for the city came in and said, well, hold a minute. Here's the evidence that this stuff had been turned over. We weren't hiding anything. And all of this material was readily available. It was distributed through different channels in the LAPD. And the judge then said, well, f- you know, she realized that she'd been played. And uh, but the damage was done. The mistrial was declared. And now it was a matter of putting everything back in motion. So that's what took place. Um, but uh, to my point, like last night, you've got him saying, well, you know, this, this really rare ammo out there that Biggie was killed with. It's never been seen before. It's so unique, which is all bullshit. There was stores all over the South County that, that had that ammunition available to anybody that walked in and wanted to buy it. And then I pulled out the document showing that, look, just within a few months of Biggie's murder, that ammunition was showing up on other crime scenes. So really, how rare is that? It's not. Well, they was making it seem like that 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 ammo was only used that one time, and they haven't seen it in <laughs> California. It ain't been used. That was their claim that it's never been used in the history of the United States in any type of crime. Now, was the gun that was used to kill Pac ever recovered? Because on that A and E documentary, the one uh, "Who Killed Tupac," hosted by uh, Benjamin Crump, mm-hmm. the civil rights attorney, they claim to have found the gun in the backyard of a Southside Compton Crips house. Yeah, so it was never conclusively proven to be the gun. There was good reason to believe it could have been because there was issues with Corey Edwards. He was the individual who uh, was out in Las Vegas with the rest of the Southside Crips when Pac was shot. And Corey Edwards was really, he wasn't down with all that. He wasn't trying to be part of that. And uh, so they thought he was kind of ranking out. 
And so when the murder went down and Corey had kind of distanced himself from it, they saw they saw that he was just maybe too soft or whatever. And uh, the gun may have been tossed in his backyard just to kind of fuck with him. That was the working theory. I don't know if that's true or not, but a forty caliber Glock was found in the backyard of uh, his girlfriend's parents' house, actually, in Compton. And uh, we recovered the gun. And uh, actually, Compton had recovered the gun. We took it to Las Vegas to test it and compare it against the ballistics in Tupac's case. But the uh, analysts out in Las Vegas said that it wasn't a match. So we had to we had to accept that. Had to accept it, even though there's been rumors that the Las Vegas district attorney's office doesn't even want to touch this case. Yeah, you know, I again, I have to just stick with what we're being told. I can't make that. I can't draw that conclusion that they're intentionally because um, they have nothing to gain to even charge anyone in this. Because everyone would have to be dragged back to Vegas. Mm-hmm. The trial would take place there, and this is just a city that doesn't want that type of attention. Yeah, and at this point in time, there's really nobody to drag back, you know, other than Keefe D and his own confessions of his involvement. The other guys in the car are all dead. Um, the guy who gave the gun to Keefe D, he's dead. Von Zip. Von Zip, yeah. So all of these guys that would potentially be their co-conspirators or co-defendants, they're all gone. And there's no real witnesses who can come and say, yeah, I, I was there. Keefe D was the one who was in the car and had the gun and was participating in the murder. So you've basically got Keefe D testifying against Keefe D. <laughs> Hard case to, to take to court. Did you ever find the, the car, the white Cadillac? I believe it was a rental car. Did you ever track it down through VIN number or anything to it, see if there's any forensics on that car? No, unfortunately... I think that's an area that maybe the ball got dropped on Las Vegas's part. By the time we came onto the scene, you know, we're 10 years after the fact. So to go back and try to get records on a rental car from 10 years, those don't exist. They're purged out of the system. So it's impossible then to know, because that car might be sitting in someone's backyard or might be in the junkyard, you know? Yeah. Now, these days, yeah, that was a long time ago. Did nobody have no license plate number or nothing to find that car, the first person that seen that car was me at the 662. You saw the white Cadillac. Yeah, they was there. Yeah, they was there. And being chased and all of that, and wasn't nobody thinking about getting no license plate number. But since it was a rental car, it would be, it seemed to be a, a car that would be easily but tracked. But name, but you got to know who name it is. That was, that was, that's pretty much hard though, Alex. There was some information that probably could have been followed up on better. It was that the driver of that car, a guy named Terrence Brown, they called him Bubble Up. Um, T. Brown, his mom, it, could have, it was either his mother or his mother-in-law, was the one who actually had rented the car over at the Enterprise at LAX. Mm. And so if we had known that or if law enforcement had known that back at the time, Potentially, they could have run down that lead and found out that there was a connection between T. Brown and the car. That would have been monumental. But even still, for y'all records today, can y'all go back and look and see if that was a white Cadillac, whatever color it was, to make the model the whole nine? 
Yeah, no, because all those records were purged. You know, those rental car companies, after a period of time, they just purge their records. They don't keep them indefinitely for, you know, two decades. Yeah, but Enterprise, for example, takes all their cars that are like a two years old and they put them on an Enterprise lot mm-hmm. and then they sell them right. to the public. Right. They, those records still exist because they have to track who'd you sell it to. You had to put insurance on the car. There has to be a payment plan, so that means it was financed. So there's got to be records on I, these I guess cars. T- the point I'm trying to make is that first you'd have to go to a rental or to Enterprise and say, here's a name. That's purged. So if you were to go to them and say, hey, 20 years ago, they'd be, we don't have those records of Mrs. Brown. And that's the only way where you're going to be able to track the car because through her name is so the only... basically is all lost. How about this? You have, well, you've learned about this in 2006, 2007, right? 2009, 2009. really. 2009, okay. Yeah. So 13 years later, you, you know that they rented a car from Enterprise, mm-hmm. a white Cadillac, a mm-hmm. 96 Cadillac. Mm-hmm. How many of them could there have been? And they have records of all the VIN numbers. They probably don't have a record of who rented it. Right. But the identity of the car should still be recorded somewhere, right? With the VIN number and the license plate. Yeah, theoretically, you're right. Uh, that that well, even if they got the card, I mean, thirteen years later, you ain't gonna get nothing off of it. Well, apparently they they got shot back at. I'm just I'm just looking at it as a piece of evidence that was never looked at. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Okay. So let's say that you were able to do that from a practical standpoint. Let's say you identified the car and it still exists, and you could go recover it. That connects you to Terrence Brown, right? Who's dead? Connects you to Keefe D by way of you know, his own confession of saying he's in that car. So what does that actually do as far as a potential prosecution? What's the value of that knowledge or that evidence today? It's too late. Yeah. Well, in 2006, what what year did Terrence Brown get killed? He died in, uh, it was just a few years ago, really. Yeah, he was still alive. He was still alive. When our task force started. That's correct. Yes, that's correct. And I'll just concede to the fact that that effort wasn't made. Okay. Yeah. Let's get to some of uh, Reggie's points that he wanted you to cover. I guess this first one, um, Gene Deal been doing a lot of talking on this case lately. Oh, man, I've seen that guy. <laughs> and I, I really don't want to even comment on that cat because I don't know him. He uh, said some shit. I, don't, I ain't never seen this dude. I don't care nothing about this. You live in New York. What the fuck? What is you talking about? Uh, fuck Reggie and James. So he said that. He said this a couple of months ago. But I, I'm not going to even reply to that because you don't know me to say that. If that's how you feel, I mean, Gene Deal can come to Gangster Chronicles to sit down and we can talk. He can bring his people. But after the fact, we can move this table and Gene Deal handle his business. <laughs> that's the only way he can talk to me and talk shit. I don't want to hear that shit. I ain't finna be no studio gangster. I ain't finna be talking. From Gangster Chronicles to your little ragged ass podcast, whatever you're doing on your couch, and 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 just go back and forth. I'm not finna do none of that shit. But yeah, he been talking. <clears throat> so I went and looked up uh, Gene Deal and Mace, and the video I watched that Mace got on this video and was telling him, y'all had guns too. Why y'all didn't shoot at the cat that shot Biggie? They actually sat there and watched Biggie get shot. Nobody don't know that. But Mace put it out there. Y'all had guns. Y'all the security. Why y'all didn't shoot this dude? Well, 
I don't know, but for anyone who's 45 and under, they don't know who Mace is. But Mace was one of the top rappers on Bad Boy Records in the uh, early 90s. I think he was actually on before Biggie was on. But um, I guess um, Gene Deal was present when Biggie got killed. Yeah, he was there. Gene Deal was the bodyguard for Bad Boy for Puff. So even though I know you don't want to hear nothing he got to say... Um, do you think he has any value, Greg, of being present and what his story is? Of course. You know, whatever his observations were that night need to be um, taken into consideration. You know, he did have this encounter or, you know, kind of a soft encounter uh, with an, a guy that he perceived um, as a nation of Islam. In his original statement, what his, he said, yeah, he was dressed like a guy from a nation of Islam, but I don't think he was because he wasn't acting like one. I don't know what that means. I don't know what a nation of Islam guy acts like that's any different than the next guy who might be standing there with a bow tie. So I'm not sure exactly what that means, but that was his statement. I don't think he was a real NOI because of the way that he was acting. But he says a guy in a bow tie came walking up, looked suspicious. And you have to keep in mind that the previous night there was a confrontation with some guys from the Nation of Islam and Bad Boy at the uh, Shrine Auditorium. So that's already in his mind as a bodyguard, as a security guy looking for threats. They've already had an encounter. He sees a guy, makes him uncomfortable, and then that individual kind of looks over at him and then turns around and walks up the street in the direction of where the shooting will ultimately take place. So yeah, that's great information. That's important information to know. But what ends up happening is over time, that story continues to just evolve and change. And that's where it becomes problematic. You know, we have his original interview and we retained everything he said. It's all recorded. And the things that he's saying now and has been saying are not consistent with what he originally said. And so you've got to ask yourself, well, then what's the motivation? Why are things changing? Is it just to stay relevant? Is it to be sensational? Is it to get clicks? You know, because your story shouldn't be changing that much. Well, didn't Lil C's, Lil Caesar, who was part of the, the Biggie camp, didn't he say something similar about a guy from the Nation of Islam? And I think this kind of promotes the Harry Billups theory, sure. the Amir Muhammad theory. Because to this day, Gene Deal believes Amir Muhammad was the shooter. Am I right about that? Uh, well, I'm not exactly sure if he truly believes that. He's kind of committed to it now because of the fact that he identified him and said it's the shooter. So he's never going to change that regardless of the evidence that, you know, works against that that thought. Um, but there may be some legitimacy to the idea that a Nation of Islam guy, real or not real, um, was somehow involved in what took place. I don't think that Pucci would have been in a, in a position if he's sitting in his car to know exactly where Biggie was sitting. So maybe Pucci had a lookout. Maybe somebody was spotting. And so I can't discount that. All I can tell you with absolute confidence is that that guy that he saw from the Nation of Islam was not Amir Muhammad. But last night you did say that both shootings, the Pac and Biggie, have conspirators. The theory that Pooch was alone in that car when he shot Biggie, but you believe they're conspirators in the Poochie shooting. It makes the most sense to think there's at least one other um, co-conspirator, that somebody else may have been out on foot and said, okay, listen, we're watching. Because you got to keep in mind that it took a while for them to get in their cars and to get out onto the street and to pull away. Somebody would have had to been in a position to say, hey, it's the second Suburban, Big's in the right front seat. 
So, you know, because Pucci's not going to be in a position to go into the parking lot, see where they're at, then run, get his car, get back out on the street and be in a position to do what he did. So it would make the most sense that there is probably some communication between the car and somebody out there watching, watching directly where Big is at. Are the, there's a little bit of videotape from somebody that mm-hmm. was standing across the street from the Peterson Museum. I don't know, it's like 15 seconds, 20 seconds. Yeah. Was that video useful at all? I mean, you could hear the number of shots, mm-hmm. but other than that, was it useful? Well, it was because it, it, it showed, for one, the kind of mayhem that was going on around there. You saw the amount of people going on and all of the activity. You see um, Puffy pull out of the parking lot, and they're just kind of posted up for a minute out in the middle of the street waiting for Biggie's suburban to pull up behind them so you capture all of this and so you can see clearly where puffy's at in the in the car you can see where his driver's at and then you see where the shooting takes place which is right there at the corner because they keep the video rolling as everybody's jumping out of their cars running over to big and trying to attend to him so yeah there's value in it for sure every piece of information is potentially valuable okay is gene deal saying that he saw Amir Muhammad shoot Puppy. Mm. I mean Biggie. No, Gene's not saying that. Gene's saying that the guy that he saw that walked up and caused him to, um, you know, caused him to take note is Amir Muhammad. So why they putting him out there like he's a killer, Amir Muhammad? Why they putting him out there like a killer if nobody said he was the driver, the man that pulled up and mm-hmm. popped nine times? Because I know ain't nobody in that car mm-hmm. look their head up and say, oh, that was him. I, oh, yeah, I know him from a T. While them shots was going. So how is they, they paint him to be the killer? So circumstantially, what ends up happening is Little Cease, who's in the best position to actually see the shooter, he's right behind Biggie in the rear passenger seat. So that Impala would have pulled right up alongside so the shooting takes place, and, and Little C says, shit, I, I ducked like anybody would. But there was that moment when I looked over and I glimpsed at the shooter, and he was wearing Nation of Islam type of attire. You need a reenactment of that, because you're a cold cat to sit up and, and look at somebody that's dumping on you. Well, I've been in that situation many times, and I'm not finished keep my head up to see who's shooting at me. Yeah, so it might have been if, if, you know, if we just take this, if, if we do reenact this in our minds and imagine that you're sitting in the backseat of that Suburban and you happen to look over and the shooting hasn't taken place yet, but you just happen to notice a car pulling up alongside of you and you see a guy in a suit and then the gun comes out and then you duck. So there's, there's a plausible um, reality that maybe, maybe C saw what he said he saw. Yeah, I mean, that would be... Two seconds, maybe? Mm-hmm. Just two seconds. Yeah. Is that enough to get a glimpse of somebody and send them to prison for the rest of their life? No, but no. how often does a few seconds of eyewitness testimony help land a conviction? It don't. It does. People get convicted on uh, Oh, I just had a eyewitness, glance of me? Yeah. Well, that in, that in consideration with other information, yeah. you know, because you've got... Well, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. Um, so you have him go in Little C's in, in G-Money, Gregory Young, who was the driver of Biggie's car. Um, they go and sit down with a forensic um, uh, artist, and they draft up a couple of composites. Well, you look at these composites, and you know you can see what you want to see. 
you know, but they could be, there's a lot of people could look like these guys because the two composites don't necessarily even look alike. So that's problematic in itself. One of them does look like Harry Billups. Exactly. I looked at and And whoever did that composite didn't right. know anything about Harry Billups or right. Muhammad. So is it just a coincidence that Lil C's, Gene Deal, whoever gave the information to the artist, mm-hmm. is a coincidence? Mm-hmm. Nah, it's the, the shape of his head. All black men look nah, alike. There's, there's a, a, a resemblance. Well, we all got a twin. Well, so this becomes even more difficult because the way that this individual is described by Eugene Deal does not match the individual that Little C saw. So their descriptions aren't consistent. So now you're like, okay, well, Eugene Deal believes that this guy that walked up is the, is, was potentially the shooter and identifies Amir Mohammed, right? Well, in their descriptions, they're not consistent. So you have to take all these things into consideration and try to work through, you know, how do, how do people's impressions affect it? How's the lighting? How quick this took place? And the best thing to actually do um, as an investigator is to sit and listen to these guys talk. Not just take um, the written statements like, hey, he said he looked 24 to 25, uh, a grayish to maybe light suit. When you listen to their actual interview tapes and you hear their voices, you get a very clear impression that they didn't see anything. Exactly. Because <laughs> yeah. number one, Gene Deal is given a description of a man that he saw standing by, not of the shooter. What difference do that make? And then once again, his his uh, sketch is is totally different from the picture that the other guy did. You know his description. So what is his purpose? You feel me? I and mean, everybody just yeah. Said, so Eugene Deal. I'm sorry to cut yeah, you off, but ahead. since we were here talking about Eugene Deal, uh, after you know the investigators had interviewed him several times, they took a six pack, a, a photo lineup to him, and displayed that and. He picked out a guy in one of the positions that investigators knew had absolutely just some random guy had nothing to do at all with this murder. But Eugene Deal says, yeah, that's that's what the guy looked like. And so now you've got at least what Eugene Deal's impression of that individual was. That guy looks nothing like Amir Mohammed. So then down the road, years later, Eugene Deal sees a picture of Amir Mohammed and says, that's the guy. Well, if that's the guy, why does he look so much different than the original guy that you said looked like him? And then you find out that Eugene Deal saw a picture of Mir Mohammed in XL magazine prior to seeing him in this photographic lineup. So he's seeing the same picture twice and then saying, well, XL magazine is identifying this guy potentially as the killer. Well, here he is in the six-pack. Yep, that's the guy. That's a cold person. So what percent are you confident that the shooter was Wardell Foos, a.k.a. Poochie, like if you were going to put a number on it? I'm really confident. I'm not as confident um, as I am with Orlando Anderson and Tupac. You know, I mean, there's just absolutely no doubt whatsoever. 100% confident on that. 100%. 100%. But you can't say that for Wardell Foos. For Wardell Foos, I'm probably closer to 95, only because nobody can positively identify him as the shooter as we do with Orlando, right? Um, but because of the, you know, the information that was provided by the intermediary, by Suge's female accomplice, um, her description of everything and uh, her 
um, statement that it was Wardell Faust, that it was Pucci that she paid to do the hit. And then Pucci's own individual background as a hitter for Suge and being <laughs> suspected of doing a whole bunch of other murders. Well, he's definitely capable of doing it. He fits the profile of somebody that would carry out something like that. So those things collectively make the best case for who the shooter is. Because aside from him, we don't have anybody else. Yeah. It's certainly not Amir Mohammed. That's conclusively been disproven. That's 100% disproven. That is 100% disproven. There's not even a 5% chance he's the one. There's not even a (laughs) 0.5% chance that he's the one. There's a second point here that uh, Reggie wanted us to address, James. I'm I'm not familiar with this. Phil Carson, former FBI agent, uh, has a theory on this that I guess aligns with Randall Sullivan's? Yeah, it... You know, um, again, I don't know this individual, never met him, so I can only criticize him professionally. And I think that he, like Russell Poole, has formed an opinion based on very loose circumstantial information and then refuses to accept the information that refutes that. And so he just sees one big massive conspiracy that, that's, that, that on its face is completely unbelievable. Now you can you can understand some people might find it difficult that you're criticizing professionally a trained FBI agent, mm-hmm. someone that should see everything you're saying, but you're saying even though this guy's an FBI agent mm-hmm. trained by the most powerful government on earth, he still got it wrong. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying, <laughs> and I'll t- and I'll tell you why. First, when he came on, you know he 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 wasn't on the job or anything. When you know he was a young agent when he was assigned this case, and he came out of white collar crimes. Now all of a sudden he's dealing with this whole other element, and uh, and of course um, he's given he's given this informant, and he puts all of his puts all of his credibility on this informant. Well, this informant's absolutely disproven, and you know we can unwrap that and I can demonstrate to you how we can conclusively um, say that Michael Robinson was the name of this informant was lying in regard to this case. Is it is it normal for the police to fight a case or try to solve a case after 23 years? Why they don't just let it go? Well, for Phil Carson, he came on to this case back in... Um, you know, around the time that the lawsuit was being waged because he read into these claims against police corruption and read into Russell Poole's allegations that David Mack was... So he opened up his own FBI investigation into the LAPD to probe into corruption. And he began to uncover things that, in his mind, was substantiating these claims. But he was relying on people who were lying And instead of just accept and realize at some point in time that, you know what, I've been, um, I've lost my objectivity. And that's exactly what happened to Russell Poole. And so now all we have is an FBI version of Russell Poole out there who refuses to accept the known facts instead of the speculation that is is driving his narrative. (laughs) Well, the last thing uh, that Reggie Wright wanted you to touch on and I guess we, we've talked about this on the show before, Keefe D's confession. 
Um, yeah, we get a much, we get so much of that. Yeah, and I'm uh, sure you've talked about it many, many, mm-hmm. many times. And by the way, let me let everybody know that I have Keefy D uh, ready to do a Keefy D sit down. Me and Keefy D going to sit down at the round table and we're going to discuss the... Is that right? The logistic... I'm, huh? I'm saying, is that right? Yeah. 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 I'm, uh, he be here tonight at, at 8.30. Oh, okay. Well, so, one question I do have about Keefe D confession is, why did it get leaked? Did you leak it? And did, I mean, that information being out there puts Keefe D in a very dangerous situation, something that he didn't even know he was being recorded at all mm-hmm. the entire time. Mm-hmm. So how did it become public, this confession? So when we sat down with Keefe D, uh, myself, the FBI, uh, KVD's lawyer, we sat down under what's known as a proffer agreement, and he um, divulged all of the details about what took place in Las Vegas the night Tupac was shot. At that point in time, it's we're just going through the investigative, um, uh, we're just going through the uh, kind of investigative process until I retired, and I came to the realization that these. These crimes, the public is never going to know what we did in this investigation and the information that we attained. And so I took it upon myself to say, hey, listen, and I went and met with Keefe D before I did it, by the way. He knew that I was releasing the information. I went to his house. Um, we sat in my truck, and I said, here's the deal. Um, you're never going to probably get prosecuted on this, but I'm going to expose what you did. And uh, I said, I'm just letting you know ahead of time. I'm writing a book, and I'm going to tell the story. And uh, listen, you got a huge break on the on the dope case that we built against you, which was 25 to life. You're walking away on a murder. So if if the punishment for you is that the public knows the truth about what you did, well, then that's just the fucking way it's going to be. But it should have made him even. It, it shouldn't have hurt him. And that's not the part that's hurting. KPD situation is just the fact that people know that he sat down with the police and discussed his nephew. That's that's what's hurting him. Yeah, well, I think it's two things that's going to hurt KPD for the rest of his life. One, that he got exposed as an informant, a snitch, in some in some way. Not really. However you want. No. Come on, man. When you're you telling gotta, the police, see, this person killed that person. But see, you got to look at it like this: my nephew is dead, and he took advantage of that. Because he was fighting 25 to life, right? He got caught with some drugs. Yeah. So if I can speak on this, my nephew and them, all these cats is gone. So if I can speak on that, he used that shit as a street ticket to get out of this situation. I completely and he understand. Did that. But he didn't, what fucked him up is he didn't think that Greg was going to put it out there that you told on your nephew. And that's, what, that's my point. Now that- here you got a man that, that, that made it be the 25 to life. Two times. I thought it was a smart move on his part because he knew that no one was going to go to jail, no one's going to prison, no one's getting mm-hmm. indicted, and I get to go home. Exactly. But still, the pub, I'm talking about the way the public will perceive him. Right. One, you told. And two, now we know for sure you killed my favorite rapper in the world. <coughs> well, He's hate him for that. Hate me for that. But... When I when you and I speak one little negative thing about Pac, they go in on us. They do. Now imagine how they're feeling about Key V D. You know? Exactly. So you kinda of put him out there on those two things, which I did. Which and could actually get him killed if he's not careful. 
Yeah, and um, I'm not sorry I did it. You know, um, he's who he is. I told him what I was going to do. His response was, oh, fuck it then. I'm a gangster. I'll handle that shit. <laughs> that's exactly what he told me. And said, okay, well, that's your, that's your decision. That's your life. That's you. Go do you. I'm telling the world what the fuck happened because this story is more important than you. In fact, I think this story is more important than your life. Mm. So what was your, your process of getting that out to the public? Who did you turn to and how did it eventually... How did we all learn about this confession? So I ended up getting a, a, a guy that uh, was a professional writer. And we sat down and I said, hey, you know, would you like to collaborate on this? And he said, yeah. And, uh, you know, I got a publishing contract with uh, Random, uh, Random House. And we wrote the rough draft. And then Random House got it. And they read what was in the book. And they're like, we ain't publishing this, man. We ain't doing some... <laughs> pointing some fingers at puffy combs his office is right across the street from ours mm. we're not having that he's very litigious and he's just gonna not you know appreciate what you're saying about him in this book it's like all right well i've got this i've got this material and i know that i can defend it and i think that when puffy reads it he's gonna know it's true anyways mm-hmm. and that uh I, I wasn't in fear of of being sued and so i published it and it ran its course wow well, um, I could sit here and talk to you all day, all night, all morning long, but uh, we're going to have to wrap this up in a minute. James, you got any last final thoughts? No, I just think it all should be over. Uh, let these guys rest. <laughs> uh, we know ain't nobody going to jail for it. <laughs> everybody, everybody lost. Everybody lost something and somebody, you know, in this game, this death row thing. Nobody came out on top, period. Suge Knight, you know, 500-something million dollars, 28 years in prison. Everybody lost. So I think it should be buried up under a rug somewhere, and people just need to accept what's really out there, the truth. The, 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 the killers are dead. So you ain't finna get a conviction, let it go. But... People still see money and and other things in this, but it's it's over. Well, Greg, can you tell everybody uh, where they can get your book and and let us know what's going on with you? Yeah, so Murder Rap you can find on you know Amazon.com anywhere where books are sold. You can you can download it. There's a digital version, and then uh, um, of course that led to a documentary that that's uh, <clears throat> likely titled also Murder Rap. And then there's a series that's kind of loosely based on the book called Unsolved. It was on, <clears throat> excuse me, on Netflix last year. I binge watched that a few months ago. Yeah. It was pretty good. It was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you go one episode into the next episode, and uh, yeah, it, it was uh, well done. Good. Thanks. Yeah, I thought so too. That was USA, right? USA. Originally, is USA, and then Netflix picked it up. Okay. Yeah. So, where can people find you? Are you on social media, on the internet, website? Man, I'm so easy to find. Yeah, I, I'm, I've got a Facebook page, and you know, I'm always. People ask me questions on Twitter. I just throw my email out there. So I'm always, I'm always around and available to answer questions because you know, I, I put myself out there, and so now I have to deal with the responsibility of that. And if people have questions, and you know, nothing's off the table because um, I, I, I feel that, um, you know, information is you, you know is power sure and, is. 
and sure when is. people want to have closure, or they want to find out what took place with these two gentlemen, I'm going to do everything I can to get those facts straight. Well, I appreciate you uh, spending a little time with us. I see James has uh, this bottle of wax. Tell us about that. Yeah, I just wanted to let everybody know that I'm, I'm supporting my cousin. You know, he's a black entrepreneur himself. He He's into a little bit of everything. And, and you know, uh, he was detailing my sister car, and he got this merchandise, which was in, he made it all the way to the to uh, Walmart, had his shit on the shelf, and, you know, he just didn't have the exposure that he needed. So I felt that it was only right that I help him out. Sure. I mean, I'm helping family. I got a lot of things going on that's in the community trying to help, you know, our people, you know, the best way I can and, and to use my platform to help him. Uh, I got him here. I want him to come and say what his product is. We come in with a little infomercials or whatever it is to explain how his, his product work. And, uh, you know, just trying to launch something and, and get it going. Well, let him come on the mic real quick for a second and uh, explain it briefly before we wrap up the show. No, great. Oh, okay. Real quick, tell us about this wax. It's a, a spray wax that uh, you spray on your car. Keeps the car shiny for weeks. Um, it's real easy to use. Even after the rain, it still has the car shining. I want to thank the Gangster Chronicles and James for um, letting me uh, just get the the uh, all the all of the. Uh, he a little nervous, y'all. So <laughs> all of the uh, people that you guys have watching the show, thanks for um, having me come on and. Uh, yeah, it's just a good product. I've washed a lot of stars' cars, and uh, I recently kind of retired from detailing cars, and I came with this product right here, Magnificent Wax. How do people find the Magnificent Wax if they want to get a bottle of it? You can go to MagnificentWax.com, and, uh, yeah, we we ship the product out and uh, can give it to you. Well, we're going to have all of that. We're hooking it up. We're going to, everybody going to see what it do uh, at a later date. Uh, Friday, he'll be uh, with his little demonstration, and then it'll come on on a little little spit of Gangster Chronicles. People can see it, and we're going to try to target some, some, some good names to put it out there, and we're going to see what it do. All right. That's uh, so, MagnificentWax.com. Go get you a bottle, and... Uh, Thanks for coming on. Thank you. And before too. we wrap up the show, uh, I need Greg to come back and sit real quick. I just have this one final question. We didn't get to talk about it. I had it here in my notes, but I'm sure in your investigation, um, the Frank Liga and Kevin Gaines shooting came up. Mm -hmm. Was there anything about these two cops that had a road rage incident important in the investigation of the Biggie killing? No, the only real connection between that incident and uh, in in the murder investigation was just the lead that uh, Kevin Gaines was involved in a relationship with Suge Knight. I'm sorry, and it was Suge Knight's wife, Sharitha, with Sharitha. Mm -hmm. And the car that he was driving the day that that uh, encounter took place was registered to her. And so for Russell Poole, you know, what came to mind is like, okay, why is this LAPD officer? involved in a relationship with this 
with this uh, rap rappers, you know, this CEO's wife from this uh, record label. So that was kind of for him, like, what's going on? Why are our officers mixing with this, with these people? And then as that question began to get asked, we found out that there were quite a few cops from different agencies that were working for right, for death row records under right-way security. Well, that's problematic for law enforcement because you, it's, it's for, from their perspective, a conflict of interest. You know, you've got an organization that is perceived as criminal to a certain degree, with a bunch of gang members hanging out and drugs being dealt around the studios and a bunch of, you know, people with guns and then cops there providing security. So that was from the law enforcement perspective. There's just, that's unacceptable. You're not going to mix those worlds. Once again, they gangsters too. <laughs> um, Kevin Gaines was never found to have been a corrupt cop, right? No, there was a couple of road, ra- road rage incidents. It gets um, that label a lot. You know, even though uh, no, there's no indication that he was yeah. a corrupt cop. No, but he had a temper, and there was some reports about him having prior road rage accidents or um, incidents. And so when it came down to you really just only two people were there. One lived, one didn't. So now you're only left with the story of the guy who survived. And he says, that guy pulled up and was creating problems with me. And I was defending myself. Well, it's kind of substantiated by the fact that, well, there was a pattern for Kevin Gaines to have do, you know, doing that type of thing. He just never encountered another armed cop before. Well, we're about to wrap up. But on that note, Frank Liger claims Kevin Gaines pulled his gun out first. Mm-hmm. And then he shot in defense. Okay. But if Kevin Gaines pulled his gun out first, mm-hmm. wouldn't at least one bullet been fired? Something, some some sort of shooting from his side come? It's just pure speculation, you know. If if Gaines pulls his gun out really with no intent to shoot, mm-hmm. he's just like, oh, I'm gonna scare this motherfucker. Okay, that's a possibility. You know, yeah. <laughs> and then Liga's already got his gun out because he's a cop who's expecting problems. So boom, he just shoots back real quick. That's probably the likely scenario. All righty. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of the Gangster Chronicles, everybody. Thanks, Greg Kading, for coming down. Thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate it. Back. It was good to hear from Reggie, too. I was, <laughs> I was wondering how he was doing. And um, if you're looking for James McDonald, you can find him on Facebook with the Red Harley. And then um, on Instagram at B-I-G-G-J-3636. And he still has those shirts, but at a different number, 909-419-0345. There you go. And you can find me at Alex Alonso 101 on all social media platforms. I'm also on streetgangs.com. And, and Greg Kading, do you want to put out any locations where they can find you? Or they just Like my you? home address? No. <laughs> no, no <laughs> online anywhere. If someone wanted to... Send you a message right now. What's the easiest way to send you a message? Yeah, actually, just my Gmail or my email, GM, GA, I can't even remember my own email. Just find me on Facebook. Yeah, okay. So That's it. You can find him on Facebook. I'm sure if you just type Greg Kading, a uh, pretty unique name. It's not. I'm sure there's a no. few other Greg Kadings out there on Facebook, but you can find him on, on Facebook as well. And don't forget to download the Himalaya app if you want to listen to this show and subscribe to it. It's the red icon with the H-I in it. And we are out. And don't forget, MagnificentWax.com. Yes. Peace. Bye. Live Nation presents Concert Week. 
Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. AT&T Connects and Ode to Podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.